Hello, and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from How the UK Can Get to Zero Carbon by Chris Goodall, and first broadcast live on the 14th of May 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online are still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you very much indeed, Skeptics in the Pub, for inviting me. The first contact was from the Bristol Skeptics, but uh, I've, I've seen a lot of different parts of the, the Skeptic universe as we've prepared for this talk. Thank you very much indeed for asking me along. I'm going to talk for no more than 45 minutes. Perhaps it will be less, depending on how fast things go. And I hope we can have a, a decent and uh, provocative session uh, of questions afterwards, similar to what we would have in the pub. I did a talk for the Lewis Skeptics in the pub a few years ago, and it was pretty rambustious from beginning to end, and a lot of fun, I hope, certainly for me. Um, this is the book that I published in May of the, it's, excuse me, in February of this year. What we need to do now. Uh, it's a plan for how the UK might move towards a zero carbon world in 10, 20, 30 years' time. We promised to do so as a society by 2030. It can be done quicker if we're going to keep temperature increases down uh, to around 1.5 or thereabouts degrees of increase over pre-industrial levels. Um, April was the warmest month, was the warmest April ever, uh, and that pr the problems of climate change are getting more obvious, more dramatic every day. The book is uh, a simple book and with a, bit of, with a bit of science in, but mostly it's aiming at a general audience to identify a route to net zero across the UK economy and society. It's not just about the way we run our economy, it's also about how we run our society, our consumers, the things we do to entertain, look after ourselves. The second portion of the book, the second important objective in the book, is to try to identify ways in which the move to a zero carbon economy, that is to say one with no net emissions to the atmosphere of greenhouse gases, often called net zero, um, the effect of that move is positive in financial and social terms for the less well-off members of British society. Overall, what I'm trying to do in the book is provide a sense that it is possible to 100% decarbonise Britain, um, and therefore also probably other parts of the world, but there are lots of things about Britain which are highly specific. And second, that it's advantageous. It's going to be costly in the short term, but in the long term, the advantages of moving to a low-carbon economy are enormous. The obvious ones, such as reduced pollution, for example, in cities, are, are more transparent today than they've ever been before because of the, the crisis over the virus. But generally, there are lots of ways in which the move away from a coal, oil and gas-based economy is of benefit to all of us, uh, even though, as I say, there isn't going to be some short-term pain. Let's look a bit at the background, if I may. So far, the UK has focused almost entirely on reducing the amount of CO2 and other greenhouse gases that come from the generation of electricity. Electricity generation is the easiest way of, uh, is the easiest area to decarbonize. There's no question about that. That's true pretty much around the world. And the UK has done rather well at it, it has to be said, particularly by the comparison with other industrial economies. But it's not just energy, electricity generation that we need to decarbonize. We need to decarbonize agriculture, aviation, livestock, heavy industry, heavy transport, um, clothing, 
uh, building insulation, cement, forestry, insulation of homes, long distance shipping, and steel. Those are the main things we need to work on. Each one of them represents an extraordinarily difficult challenge in some senses. And in the book, I try to identify a way in which it might be possible within 20 to 30 years to remove all sources of greenhouse gases coming from these important, the most important areas of our greenhouse gas emissions today. Let's the pattern over the last 30 years of the way greenhouse gases have evolved coming out of the UK economy. I should stress these numbers aren't necessarily particularly accurate and they do omit the, the embedded carbon that comes into our, our country from things that are made elsewhere, whether it be computers in China, diamonds from Africa or food from France. Carbon is the total greenhouse gas emissions, which includes both carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, important ones such as nitrous oxide and methane. Nitrous oxide and methane largely come from agriculture and from agriculture-related activities. CO2 largely comes from the burning of fossil fuels. In the period from 1990, we've cut output of fossil fuels from 800 million tonnes or thereabouts to around 450 million tonnes in 2017. And that, that fall has probably continued since then, although the numbers are still preliminary. Much of that reduction has come from the fact that we've been very good at getting rid of emissions from electricity generation, as I hinted earlier. They were at around... Um, to almost 300 million tonnes. That's now in 2017 at the right-hand side of this chart. It had fallen to about 100 million tonnes, um, 40% roughly of where it was uh, 25, 30 years ago. Today, this year, it's going to be even lower than that. We've moved further away from coal. We've moved more towards renewables, particularly as we've seen a major reduction in the, in the use of um, uh, uh, electricity uh, over the past two or three months, about 20% reduction. A very different pattern if we look at transport, uh, which was much less important as a source of greenhouse mass emissions in 1990 and actually is now more important than electricity generation. It's barely changed and in fact in the last few years it's tended to shift upwards. It's done so because we've moved away from fuel efficient diesel to petrol. I'm not saying that uh, there's no reason not to, no reason to keep your diesel car. Clearly, it's a lot of problems involved in diesel, but they are more fuel efficient than petrol cars. But at the same time, we've increased the weight of our average of the cars, the cars on the marketplaces. They've been um, that we, we've moved towards SUVs and other types of larger vehicles. So there's a particular problem. How do we decarbonize? the production, our needs for personal transport. Now, moving on to a little area which I wanted to illustrate as a way of talking about the remaining problem with electricity generation. These figures here on this screen are from a website called Electricity Insights, which is a very useful website if anybody's interested. It's uh, produced by Drax, the large power station in Yorkshire, which now predominantly uses biomass as its source of fuel. What this shows is the composition of electricity generation over a period just before Easter to just after Easter. This was a windy period. It was often quite sunny. 
and often wind plus sun plus nuclear formed a very large production in the UK. The national grid had to wind down wind production in order to make sure that there was no over overproduction of electricity, which you can't have in a well-regulated electricity system. This, some of the time in our electricity generation, we have a lot of solar, we have a lot of wind, and we have nuclear and biomass and other low-carbon sources such as hydro. Some of the time, we have none of that, or very little of it. Uh, nuclear is fairly reliable, but not completely reliable by any means. But solar and wind obviously vary from close to zero, or zero in the case of solar, to a very large amount of amount. And what the government has tended to do is to say, well, we can't really expand electricity generation from renewables very much from where we are at the moment, because we're all at points where we can't use the electricity that's being generated by on offshore wind, onshore wind, and, and solar and other electricity. This is going to be a typical pattern as we um, as we move into the future. Let's assume that today's electricity consumption uh, stays low for a few months more. There will be periods when we have too much electricity generation. And part of the first part of my book looks at what we need to do about. But I make the suggestion in the book that we need to move away from the government's current philosophy of how we deal with surpluses or deficits of wind uh, of electricity generation from renewables. Very roughly, if I can overcharacterize this on this slide, what the government is saying to us is that we should do is when we have very little renewables, that's day one on the left-hand side of this chart, we make up the rest of our electricity demand by using gas-fired power stations and capturing the carbon dioxide that's coming off those power stations through a process called CCS, carbon capture and storage, uh, separating out the CO2 and piping it to somewhere where it's stored, probably underground, such as in uh, a disused North Sea oil field. The wind rises during the period between day one and day two, and renewables uh, increase, and the gas is throttled back. That therefore acts as a complement to renewables. And at all times, therefore, in planning of the Committee on Climate Change, the government's principles, uh, principal advisors, there is an assumption that we're going to have no coal on our system, but a lot of remaining gas, which will mostly sit idle, but will be available if renewables aren't there to give us the electricity we need. I don't think this is the right solution. And uh, for a few slides, I'm going to talk about what I think would be the right way of doing it uh, alternative to, to that. Now, you'll, you'll notice that, um, that in, in, the, in the standard view of what we need to do about uh, renewables to complement with gas, uh, we, uh, we still have carbon dioxide being manufactured. We're just storing it and keeping it uh, underground. But the problem with CC all of the carbon dioxide in that process. Uh, we might capture, if we're lucky, 85%. Uh, but also, it adds a lot of energy use to the electricity system. So it's expensive. Now, what we've seen over the last few years is that renewables in the UK, and very much so elsewhere as well, have become the cheapest way of generating electricity. The only reason we have for not using renewables for all our electricity consumption, and indeed a much wider energy uh, consumption as well, is because of this problem of intermittency. 
That is to say, we can't rely on the amount of renewable energy we're going to get at 12 o'clock tomorrow. Um, and therefore, we have to have lots of surplus available from fossil fuel sources. But we need to change this approach. Renewables are becoming so cheap that they of our entire energy system. So in the book, with a few numbers to back it up, to build 20 times as much renewable capacity in the UK as we have at the moment. That means offshore wind, offshore wind, solar, and a few other things as well. Now, the big advantage of this is it gets rid of almost all the problem of intermittency because we have so much electricity generating capacity that even on a very, very quiet day with no sun, we've still got generally enough to meet our needs, including that are are going to arise from the switch to electric vehicles and the use of heat pumps for domestic heating. So those two are going to add to uh, electricity demand. Uh, In the case of EVs, probably about a third of current demand is going to be um, added by EVs. And heat pumps, well, that depends on how many we install, but probably we're going to double electricity use over the next few years to heat our homes using electricity. Now, the key thing here is the third point on this slide. We're going to have a lot of electricity still left over. What are we going to do with that? How can we use it productively to form the basis of the rest of our economy, the energy needs for the rest of our economy? Not just electricity, but all the other things that we need energy for. And that is to store most of the surplus in the form of hydrogen. Simple to do in some in some senses. Pretty much everybody in this um, in this audience, probably did electrolysis when they were about 50, looked at electrolysis, the creation of hydrogen from water, uh, when they were doing GCSE uh, chemistry. Um, by passing a current through uh, water under appropriate conditions, you get um, oxygen forming at one uh, cathode and uh, uh, at one electrode, excuse me, and hydrogen at the other. You can collect that hydrogen and you can store it and you can use it for a wide variety of different things. Almost all of the things that we want to decarbonize in the rest of the economy can be decarbonized using hydrogen. We can move from carbon-based fuels to hydrogen. The electricity, the surplus electricity from that enormous oversupply of renewables is put into the electrolyzer. Hydrogen comes out. It's a simple process. It's reliable. It's highly reactive. That's to say we've got a, a temporary surplus of electricity. We can generate hydrogen very quickly in a matter of seconds from it. Now, that hydrogen can then be used to provide uh, electricity uh, when there isn't enough uh, uh, renewables to go around through something called a fuel cell or indeed combustion if we we could run conventional power stations using hydrogen we can use it to replace natural gas for heating hydrogen is a substitute potentially for natural gas in domestic heating systems in office heating systems and in industry industry as well the third thing that hydrogen can do is it can provide the key ingredient for synthetic fuels substitutes for existing fossil fuels, such as diesel, kerosene, that we can make using low carbon sources. We'll talk a bit about that later, but this is absolutely critical in my view to the energy transition. We cannot, for example, decarbonize aviation using electricity. You will not, we will not be able to do long distance flying with batteries, heavy batteries sitting in the aircraft. Very short distances, yes, possibly 20 years time. 
But no, sectors like aviation are continue, going to continue to use liquid fuels that have the characteristics of oil. We need to make sure that there's no net carbon dioxide created in their production. This is roughly what a modern electrolyzer looks like. It sits generally, it's, it's varying, it's developing, it's an industry that's growing incredibly fast at the moment, um, probably tenfold in the next two or three years, and then another tenfold after that in the next two or three years after that. As all of a sudden, around the world, people get to realize that hydrogen is probably the single most important remaining ingredient in the energy transition. We know we've got cheap renewables. Hydrogen is the way we use them effectively to create an entirely low-carbon economy. So this sits in a conventional shipping container. That's probably one megawatt's capacity. We need hundreds of thousands of times that. Uh, but in, 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 although the technology's got still a long way to go, with a lot of cost reductions available to us, it's already making hydrogen production competitive in certain circumstances against conventional sources of hydrogen. Where is this happening? Where is this process beginning to happen that I've been talking about? The use of excess electricity to make hydrogen that fulfills the needs for other energy activities in our economy. Well, it sits on the top edge of, of, of Scotland. The islands of Orkney are some of the world leaders uh, in beginning to use hydrogen as a way of getting rid of surpluses. The Orkneys don't have good electricity connections to the UK mainland. They can't export that much when they have too much electricity for their own uses. In fact, I've been told by the people in Orkney that only approximately 50% of the electricity generated by wind turbines and by tidal generators in Orkney is actually used at the moment. So they're beginning to convert it into hydrogen. They're using that hydrogen for running vehicles, for fuel cell vehicles around the islands, for powering a school on an island, the heating system of the school, for running the electricity supply to the port, and so on. This is one of the most interesting and innovative places in the world. We need to follow it very carefully. On a much larger scale, uh, we've just seen plans in the UK to start using the electricity generated from offshore wind. This is, a, this is going to be uh, an, a new offshore wind farm, I think it's called Hornsea 2, if I remember correctly, where a portion of the output from this wind farm is coming on shore. It's going to be put into an electrolyzer where hydrogen is going to be generated. And that is going to be fed in to fulfill the hydrogen needs of the Immingham Phillips 66 oil refinery on the north uh, east coast of the UK. This is still, this hasn't happened yet, it's planned. But one of the most interesting features of the last two or three months has been the large number of oil majors, the large oil companies around the world that are beginning to see that they can run their refineries, which need a lot of hydrogen to, be, um, to, to, to produce the things that are currently produced in those refineries. They can do it using very low carbon sources through electrolysis. And it's now, in some places, the cheapest way of making hydrogen. Not everywhere, but probably it is now in the North Sea as the costs of producing electricity there come down. And when we have a surplus of electricity, this is the best way to use it. Um, I make that hypothesis in the book. Right, well, let's talk a little bit about the problems of expanding our renewable electricity uh, production by 20-fold over the course of, let's say, the next 15 to 20 years. 
The obvious place to go is offshore into the North Sea as the cost, the price of electricity coming off onshore wind farms has declined so sharply and will probably continue to go down. But we need to be more sophisticated than that. It's not just a question of plonking some more wind farms down, although that's happening very successfully at the moment. It's thinking about how we run an integrated European electricity system that enables wind farms to perform the matching function. That if, if one economy is short of electricity, the wind from one wind farm, perhaps not in that region, can be directed to serving its needs. And the whole idea here is to put into the North Sea a network of man-made islands, huge things, kilometers uh, in, in circumference, that enable us to bring electricity in from wind farms around, around that hub and then export it to the place that needs it most through interconnectors, ways of shipping electricity from one place to another. The countries around the North Sea, in my view, need to get together to run these hubs both to decrease the price of generating electricity but also to enable us to have the most flexibility in how we use that electricity, delivering it to the places that are needed when it is needed on a second-by-second -second basis. These plans come from the Dutch grid operator, Tenet, which is, the, which is pushing this as hard as it can. But the UK has over 50% of the wind-generating capacity in the UK, in, in, in the North Sea, we can run many hundreds of gigawatts of capacity. That, in other words, many times what our conventional use of electricity is through building offshore wind combined with these wind hubs in the North Sea. And we can do the same to a large extent with solar. Uh, we have a lot of land that has very little use for it, but where we can put solar. Solar now is economic in many parts of the country, particularly the southwest, uh, uh, without any form of subsidy. Offshore, onshore wind, similarly across uh, most of the west, west coast of the UK, uh, produces electricity at prices which are well below prices that might be charged by a gas-fired nuclear power, a gas-fired power station. Right. In the book, I also talk about one very important thing which I think needs to be changed. We need to municipalize the generation and distribution of electricity and other utilities. And I talk in the book about the important examples that are provided by the German Stadtwerken, the locally owned and operated businesses which run the electricity and gas supply, the water supply, the broadband, sometimes the mobile networks of the citizens who live in those countries, in those areas. The biggest is the Munich City Utility, and this is the front page of their website. And as you can see at the bottom, at the, at the top, it, it deals with both gas, erdgas, strong, electricity, wasser, water, and so on and so forth. It makes a profit. It employs thousands of people. And it's increasingly reliant upon renewable electricity that it generates itself, not always in the Munich area. It's talking about building a wind farm in Norway, for example. But its aim is to become both a highly competitive uh, provider of electricity and other services to the inhabitants of the Munich area, but also to make a profit and to make sure that every single uh, a kilowatt hour of electricity in the Munich area is generated from renewable sources. One of the big problems we have in the UK is the leech-like effect of the distribution operators, the people who control the distribution of electricity to our homes. Not so much National Grid, which just manages the large networks, the very, the very high voltage networks, 
but the distribution operators, most of whom are owned by private equity funds abroad, whose only intent is to get as much money out of the system as possible, uh, we need to change that dramatically so that these entities, the municipal electricity and utility companies, become part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem. And there's quite a lot in the book about that. I've asserted that you, we could, in theory, transfer from natural gas to hydrogen for use in our homes for heating. This is not necessarily to be recommended, not because of safety or something like that, but hydrogen will always tend to be, to be quite expensive uh, because it, 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 there are some energy costs in creating it. However, it, we can probably deal with that. Uh, it would be better to convert houses to using heat pumps, which are an electric, electric way of generating cost-competitive heating. However, because of the very poor state of insulation of most British houses, this may not work in a lot of places, and therefore hydrogen boilers may be necessary as part of our solution for 100% decarbonisation. Worcester Bosch made this. This is a hydrogen central heating boiler. It can, it can be switched between hydrogen and natural gas. It costs around the same, certainly not, not significantly more than an existing boiler. Uh, and as you can see, it looks the same and will operate in the same space. So we can begin to think about transferring our heating needs to hydrogen. Uh, remember in the days of town grass before the arrival of uh, gas from the North Sea, we're talking about the mid-1960s here or before, our gas-fired um, uh, our gas system was about 50% hydrogen combined with carbon monoxide, a very much more dangerous system than we would have if we just had pure hydrogen. This isn't possible yet. We need to completely get rid of all metal in the piping systems, uh, in, the, in, the, in the large um, distribution networks for gas. Uh, but that should happen by the end of this decade. We can transfer to hydrogen for heating. And heating our homes and running our homes is roughly 25% of total emissions. This is a very important transition to make. Right. I want to talk a little bit, if I may, about also how we're going to use hydrogen to make synthetic fuels. In order to make fuels without using biomass or any other form of, uh, of, of uh, source of energy, we need hydrogen, as I've said, and we also need to collect carbon dioxide, probably from the air, but also possibly from industrial processes such as the making of cement. Once we've got hydrogen and CO2 collected directly from the air, with a bit of amendment to the CO2 to turn it into carbon monoxide, not that difficult, we can put hydrogen and CO, carbon monoxide, into a conventional chemical engineering process called Fischer-Tropsch, been around for 100 years or so, um, and turn that into things such as plastics, aviation, kerosene, or indeed petrol or equivalent for that. So we're moving on now to say, well, we've got, I've suggested hydrogen to be used for generating of electricity it can be used for the generation of heat in homes here i'm saying suggest that hydrogen can also be used for the generating of petrochemicals which are potentially no uh, have no net carbon impact at all collecting co2 from the air is early stage this is uh, a plant just outside zurich which pulls co2 which is a tiny fraction of the total atmosphere, 400 or so parts per million. In other words, uh, 
virtually, virtually, virtually not there, even uh, with today's climate change problems. This pulls the CO2 out of the air through, it passes across those big fans that you can, the three big rows of fans, um, collects it on a chemical which bonds with CO2. Uh, that chemical is taken away, heated slightly, and the, chemi- and the CO2 is driven off. The CO2 is then, by the way, piped to what you can see probably just about in the background, which is an enormous industrial-scale greenhouse. Plants like CO2. They grow better with more CO2 in the greenhouse. So there, that, that CO2 collected from the atmosphere is being used, by, is being captured by plants. Lots of experiments of this sort around the world. It's all early stage, but it is possible. There's no question about it. The only problem is the cost. It would be more quite expensive to collect CO2 at the moment, but there's every reason to believe that that can be brought down to the cost of what it is approximately at the moment. If you if you buy um, a can of Coke, it's had CO2 injected into it. That costs Coca-Cola probably 50, 80 pounds a ton. Uh, we should be able to collect CO2 from the air at roughly the same price. The key thing is getting the price of electricity and other energy down because that's what dominates the cost of collecting CO2. But once we've got CO2 and hydrogen, we can replicate all parts of the modern economy that currently use fossil fuels. But we can do so without any net addition of CO2 to the atmosphere. We can also use hydrogen to make things like uh, ammonia and fertilizers. Fertilizers, probably one, two, three percent of of global uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Here is the first attempt to use uh, green hydrogen, that's hydrogen made from renewable electricity, such as we've described through electrolysis, in a fertilizer plant in Pilbara, uh, in the west of northwest of Australia, one of the sunniest and windiest places in the world, almost perfect conditions for making hydrogen. And here, uh, Yara, a big fertilizer manufacturer on a global scale, is installing ca- the capacity to use hydrogen. What I'm trying to suggest in, the, in these slides is that with renewable electricity plus hydrogen, we have solved most of the problems of the energy portion of climate change. We can do the same thing with hydrogen in making steel. Currently, steel is probably 3, 4, 5% of world emissions uh, because it uses a lot of coal, which is burnt in emitting CO2 to the atmosphere as the process of um, uh, reducing iron ore to molten iron. This is trying to do it in a different way using hydrogen for capturing the oxygen from iron oxide uh, to make ste- eventually to make steel. Once again... This is the first of what will have to be a massive number of transitions away, but every single major steel manufacturer in the world is now committed to moving away from the coal. They know its future is limited. It's going to add some cost, but I don't think it's going to add an enormous amount. And this company, SSAB in northern Sweden, one of the biggest producers of very high-quality steel, says that it will be cost-competitive by 2025. Here is a final example. Here is uh, a a pilot plant at a university in Germany, in Karlsruhe, which collects CO2 from the atmosphere. That's that's where the CO2 is collected here. Uh, Combines it with hydrogen that's been generated from electrolysis and electricity and puts it through that Fischer-Tropsch process of combining hydrogen and carbon atoms to make hydrocarbons. And what comes out of this is a replacement for diesel. 
Once again, I'll stress this is early stage. This is not going to be cheap technology. But it's clear that we have a route to do this. And I don't think personally there's any other obvious way in which it could be done. The most difficult to decarbonize uh, sector is probably cement. When cement is made, carbon, uh, calcium carbonates are heated and CO2 is driven off in that process. We can't have cement without that. There are substitutes for cement. There are different ways of making it. But this is a really difficult challenge. And what we may have to do here is uh, simply collect the CO2 and then use it as the source of the carbon that we use in that Fischer-Trop process to make our kerosene, our petrol, our diesel, our aviation fuel or whatever. So that's the energy section. I'd now like to move, if I may, on to the other things we need to decarbonize. Energy is about two-thirds of the problem in one form or another. This is 25% of the problem, very approximately, agriculture. Inside agriculture, the single most important thing is, the, is, is livestock. And of that, cattle are two-thirds of the problem. Sheep also very problematic problematic because the digestion systems of ruminant animals inevitably emit methane. We may be able to manage that methane uh, by changing the food or drugging the animals in one form or another, but in the end we're going to have methane coming out of cattle. Methane is a powerful global warming gas and if we are going to completely de decarbonize, we have to find ways of substituting for cattle. Probably, I think, we're going to decide that we're going to stop industrial manufacture of meat through cattle farms, through feedlots, and for the other ways in which we generate our beef and our sheep meat. We can do that, excuse me, we can do that by uh, creating artificial meats. Uh, that's happening and beginning to happen on some scale in the United States. Or we can decide that we want to move away from eating meat as a society. And there are clear trends in that direction across almost all Western societies, uh, probably uh, it's most apparent so far in Israel and in France, where large segments of younger people are now uh, adopting vegan diets. It's not just enough to move, however, away from the use of livestock, particularly industrial scale livestock. We also need to change our ways <clears throat> of, of building our cereals. Cereals are always going to be a very important part of our diet, uh, both from nutritional and from calorific viewpoints. Uh, what I, there's not particularly good photographs here, but this is one of the most innovative farmers in the world. This is John Letts, farming his small holding, uh, probably in Oxfordshire. He's driving that uh, dreadful old combine harvester through a field of heritage wheat and other grains, rye, spelts, etc., um, that probably hadn't been farmed uh, productively for, for, for 100 and 200 years. The grain is two meters, up to two meters high. The reason this works is that um, he doesn't use, he need to use any pesticides. He doesn't use, he use any fertilizers. And he can, he, he, neither does he need herbicides because the grain grows sufficiently fast to strangle almost all the weeds in it. It's also on the right-hand side, this mixture of heritage grains resilient to drought. So we have here potentially a way of replacing industrial grain monoculture with a different, completely different way of, generate, of, of growing cereals. Now, you say, ah, yeah, but the yield will be vastly lower than what we can get off an East Anglian monoculture. Well, what John Betts is showing to us is that that's not necessarily the case. 
he's giving us yields which over a 10-year period are as good as you can get on industrial uh, agricultural monocultures where one field of wheat is heavily fertilized, it's enormous amounts of herbicide and pesticides occasionally depending on. The great advantage of this mixture of grain is that it's pretty resilient to pests because there's only probably 50 different types of grain in here. The pest will make consume one, but the rest, the other 49, will remain untouched. This is something we really do need to be looking at. Uh, both from the uh, maintenance of soil quality point of view, the avoidance of use of pesticides, all these are good things. But the important thing is it doesn't need any fertilizer to go in it. Properly managed, we can run this as a system without um, needing to make industrial fertilizers. So it's pretty close to zero carbon. Better than conventional agriculture, uh, organic agriculture, which is reliant upon the manure from the animals which cause that methane in the first place, the, particularly the cows. That was food. Very brief introduction. We also need to worry about clothing. Uh, clothing, probably four or five percent of total emissions and also represents around the world enormous problems of pollution and overuse of natural water sources. One potential way forward here, uh, it's, uh, it's available now. You can buy these, uh, these garments widely on the Internet tonight. Uh, it's to use a fabric called tensile, which is made from cellulose. Uh, what it does, uh, this is uh, cellulose is made from trees. That is quite a complex process, but it produces a fabric that's more long-lasting and has a very potentially very much lower environmental footprint, including its greenhouse gas footprint. We need to decarbonize travel, of course. Uh, we are beginning to see the arrival of electric cars on the left-hand side, not, not here yet, probably in the UK by the end of the year. That's the Volkswagen ID3, which is will be roughly the same price as the Golf upon which it is very, to which it is very similar. But it's not just small vehicles. We can now decarbonize. We can now produce electric vehicles uh, up to 20 tons. That's a 10-ton vehicle, a Mercedes 10-ton vehicle, entirely powered by electricity on the side. It would be more expensive at the moment, but the running and maintenance costs are vastly low. <clears throat> That's not enough. We need to have fewer cars. Uh, on the roads uh, for carbon reasons, but obviously increasingly we realise for other reasons as well, as we've seen over the past two or three months. We need to look in the UK at the example of other cities around Europe that have made dramatic improvements in pollution and in, in the standards of living of the people who live in those countries by adopting uh, car-free zones and by replacing cars and transport more generally with bicycles. On the left-hand side, that's the part of the Utrecht railway station bicycle store. Utrecht is a town of about 300,000 people uh, in, in Holland. Uh, it, there are 35,000 bicycle places around the Utrecht railway station like the one you can see. You walk in, it's comfortable, it's well lit, it's secure, and you can leave your bike there. <clears throat> On the right, Pontevedra, which was one of the first towns uh, to go for an entirely car-free city centre, most cities around Europe are now looking at this. We're beginning even to explore it in the UK with our devotion to the use of private automobiles. Even, uh, even we are beginning to think it might be a good idea to have car-free areas. Um, the great advantage of this is it pulls economic activity back into the centre of towns, something we absolutely need to do. It is absolutely wrong. We, we can be totally sure of this. It is wrong to assume that cars are necessary to the prosperity of inner cities. No, the answer is cars are a disaster 
for them for, for both from a social point of view, but also from an economic into, uh, point of view for the prosperity of our cities. <clears throat> we can also use electricity uh, for ships. For short, that's on the right-hand side, left-hand side, excuse me. That is a, uh, that is a uh, ferry uh, which travels, I think, about 40 kilometers between two Danish islands. That's entirely run by electricity. For larger ships, we're almost certainly, in my view, either going to move to hydrogen as the propulsion energy or to move uh, to use ammonia, which is very largely made out, which is made from hydrogen and from nitrogen. So it's a hydrogen derivative. I'm trying to show here that for most things, we can move to a hydrogen-based economy if we can't electrify it. We can't make electric planes, and we never will be able to do so in all probability. We've therefore got to decide whether we want to fly so much, but urgently we need to find ways of creating synthetic aviation fuels which can replace the high carbon um, that we're using at the moment. But remember that when flying, it's not just the CO2. The, the effect of flying and delivering CO2 and water vapor to the high atmosphere is far worse than it would be at the surface. It's probably about twice as bad. So we need to think about whether the world should be flying as much or whether we can ratchet back um, the aviation, even if we can generate low-carbon fuels. To do that aviation, it's probably better that we don't do it uh, at all or we do it to the minimal extent. One of the big challenges that the UK faces in particular, and I'm aware that I've probably only got two or three more minutes, so I shall race through this if I may, is the very poor quality of our housing stock from an insulation point of view. Uh, about a quarter of houses in Britain were built before 1914. They're almost all very badly insulated. They use a lot of energy. That costs money and at the moment is producing CO2 in vast quantities. As I say, roughly 25% of our total CO2 emissions coming from houses. This is the most interesting experiment we're seeing in the UK at the moment, the use of a Dutch technology called Energy Sprung. Uh, here, six houses, uh, seven houses in Nottingham converted. Two houses weren't, you can see, because they're in private ownership. They, t they declined this opportunity. The others are five are social, seven are social housing. Um, dramatic reduction by, by pinning panels to the outside of the wall, by putting solar panels on the top, by refurbishing inside. The bills uh, for these houses, which were <clears throat> for heating alone, £1,500 a year in one case, um, have now declined to about a tenth of that. And they can eventually become zero carbon. We also need to build houses. It's not as important as refurbishing old houses, but we need to work on building houses which have zero net carbon embedded in them. It's not just operating a house that, that, that causes energy loss. It's building it in the first place with the concrete and the other things we need to use. But we can replace our new housing with, instead of masonry and concrete, we need to, we need to base it around wood. Uh, that's the way it happens in most parts of the world. We've got this strange affliction that we think that only houses made out of brick can possibly work. No, we can create housing that uses predominantly wood, and that's both better for the carbon dioxide embedded in them and much easier to insulate. Moving on. One of the things we need to address uh, to help uh, pull CO2 out of the air is the very low level of forestry in the UK. This illustrates it uh, in the five biggest European countries, the average 
car, um, forestry level is about 35%, including Germany, France, Spain, and Italy. In the UK, it's 13%. By pushing that back up to 35%, probably by giving over land that's currently used for very low-value pasture, we have a chance to significantly cut our emissions to pull back CO2 from the atmosphere. Uh, that's a, this is an illustration of how much we can do, how much we can make from wood compared to the sheep meat that would be replaced on the same would, would be on the same land. And it also will save us money. Uh, subsidies for sheep farmers cost about a billion pounds for the UK at the moment, and that's not going to go away. We're also the second biggest importer of wood products in the world after China, the second biggest in the world. We bring in eight billion pounds. Much of that could be replaced if we decided to shift from very low value sheep cultivation to the cultivation of wood and wood products. I mean, talk, I'm, I'll, I'll just dash straight over. This is about carbon taxes. I believe there's a very strong argument for carbon taxing because that makes hydrogen and all the things that come off it competitive very quickly. It doesn't have to be a particularly high carbon tax. It might be as high, it might be only two or three times what the current EU carbon tax is operating at. But that's enough now that things are getting cheaper to push big companies towards using low carbon alternatives when they can. Right, I'm talking about other ways of capturing carbon from the air. I'm just going to stop. This is the last slide, if I may. I uh, haven't talked about this extensively, but I did want to make the point that this transition can be good for social equality in the UK. Better insulated homes, improving, therefore, the lives and the health of people across the UK. Better public transport by pushing cars out and prioritising public transport. Lowered pollution, including noise. Many of us have benefited enormously from that over the last two months. Better food, moving away from industrial agriculture and manufacture of very low quality food, which are based around meat of low quality itself. Providing more jobs in renewables. Offshore wind could be a major, is a major sector. We have the resources to make it the source of employment, very high quality employment uh, across much of the UK. We can build jobs in forestry and wood products. And by doing, building a circular economy, particularly around secondhand clothes, secondhand electronics and things like that, where we're beginning to make progress, but it's a very long way to go, we give um, more employment locally based, municipally based. And that's the last point, local control over energy. That's a good way of bringing back employment and income to the cities uh, and towns that have been sucked dry by uh, the globalization of energy supply. And also, lastly, to provide a dividend from the carbon tax, which disproportionately benefits the less well-off in society. Thank you very much. That's the book. Uh, I hope you get a chance to read it at some stage. everyone welcome back i hope you've got your drinks now and i imagine the queue at the bar wasn't very long uh, there's always a benefit to everything um we have got a lot of really really interesting questions here so what we're going to do is work through the uh, up, most upvoted ones and see how much time we've got so uh, once again chris thank you so much for your talk it was really really interesting as evidenced by the number of questions we've got. Uh, the first question here comes from Anonymous. If, if people don't put their names on, then even if there's no way of knowing who they are. But the first question is, do you encounter many climate change deniers? If yes, how do you engage with them? 
uh, I, I don't encounter anymore anybody who doubts the existence of climate change. I do encounter um, people who think that the problems of climate change are very small and highly manageable by Western society. Um, and in those cases, you, what I try to do is try and find out what it is that is driving the sense that the potentially utterly disastrous changes that can take place to the world's environment are manageable. Um, that's not often a very productive discussion, but I think it's important to, to recognize that it is possible as we're seeing with the current problem, that the proposed solution is more difficult than just simply living with the problem. I, please, I don't want to get into the question of whether we should be more locked down or less locked down, but you can see there is potentially a debate there, and there's the same sort of debate about climate change, with the following ex exception. The problem with climate change is that the effects of it are going to be, are already being felt most dramatically in the poorest parts of the world. We in the UK can cope, and in certain ways it might improve warmer winters, for example, so less cold in the house. But for the majority of the world's population, this is a disaster in the making. I think I try, in trying to answer this question as specifically as I can, I try to move to the questions of how people in Bangladesh are going to cope with rising sea levels, how people in the hottest parts of India are going to be able to cope with temperatures that no human being can live with, and so on and so forth, to try and to get people who are comfortable with the idea of climate change in the UK, recognising that actually this is an unbelievably difficult problem for large parts of the world's tropical population to deal with. Right, so... You're asking people to be a little less self-centred in their approach and see if that helps them think a little more widely, really. Well, well to recognise this is a genuinely global problem, that the UK's emissions are affecting the lives of people in the poorest parts of the world. Everybody's got a responsibility. We as individuals have got a responsibility. All Western societies, all societies that emit to the atmosphere are responsible. This is... A molecule of CO2 doesn't matter, doesn't matter where the molecule of CO2 is emitted, uh, it still has the same warming effect. And that warming effect is predominantly at the moment most destructive in the poorer parts of the tropics. Thank you. Um, the next question is, we live on an island. Why not use tidal and wave power? Well, big developments there um, over the last few years. There is the world's biggest and best tidal power installation off the northeast coast of Scotland, the Maygen project. Uh, that has the, as, your, your, as the questioner no doubt realises, that is pretty much the best tidal current energy stream in the world. We also have a big tidal range across most of the west of the UK, with the Severn Estuary being the best example. And we can work on that. Now, why aren't those, um, there are, as, you, as people probably know, plans to put a lagoon around uh, Swansea Bay uh, to collect energy from the fall and rise of the tide? Not going forward yet, too expensive, government refuses to back. Tidal energy off the north coast of Scotland, um, 
very, very heavily subsidized. It's not economic compared to offshore wind or onshore wind at the moment. Big advantage, of course, it is highly predictable, centuries in advance. Uh, but nevertheless, as the price of solar and wind comes down every month, it seems, it's very difficult to see how tidal um, could be um, could be cost competitive. And the problem with wave, the last thing I'd say is, yes, we also have some areas of, of good wave strength, but the uh, in order to resist the very strongest waves, wave machines, unless they've got an interesting and innovative design, have to be huge, extremely strong, very large pieces of steel. That makes them very expensive as well. So yeah, we need to continue working on it, but at the moment, these are not cost competitive technologies. I'd quite like to follow that up with a little question of my my own, because I'd heard that there were potentially ecological problems with uh, doing some some tidal power, for example, stopping the seven bore or uh, mudflats for birds. Uh, tidal lagoons that that that's, that was is the big problem of barrage right across the seven. Tidal lagoons, such as the one that was proposed, is proposed around Swansea Bay probably don't have enormous problems. It's been heavily investigated and almost everybody's looked at it and said it's fine. In fact, it's probably beneficial for biodiversity, uh, but we, we simply don't know yet. Something to watch out, but I don't think it's probably blocked just because of that. Um, I think we ought to be able, with, with tidal lagoons rather than tidal barrages, we should be able to get around that problem. Brilliant, thanks. Um, next question is rather different. Uh, isn't it extremely dangerous to store hydrogen? Depends how it's stored. Uh, we are storing very large quantities of hydrogen today. We make 70 million tonnes of hydrogen and it's stored all around the world. And I don't think there's any, any problem. Right, we can store it in a variety of different ways. We can compress it and put it underground into a salt cavern, for example, uh, where it's well away from anything. We can also turn it into... Um, we, we can bind it to other chemicals, whether that be nitrogen in the case of ammonia or metal hydrides in the case of um, more sophisticated. There are lots of different ways of storing hydrogen, not directly in gaseous form. Obviously, if we use hydrogen for heating systems, we have to put it in relatively low pressure into our, heating, into our gas networks. There's no avoiding that. But there's no reason to believe that that's any more dangerous than, for example, the petrol tanks that we distribute uh, around the petrol filling stations of the world. It's a problem. It's probably solvable. Thank you. That, that question came from uh, Matt at Bristol Skeptics. And the next question is from Joe from Oxford, who asks, what incentives would you give to encourage the conversion of electric vehicles, especially to companies, landlords, councils, etc., who'd have to put in the infrastructure? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. Clearly. Right. Sorry, what, <laughs> it's quite long. Sorry, what incentives would you give give to encourage conversion to electric vehicles, especially to councils and people who'd have to fund the infrastructure? Um, the first point I'd, I'd, I'd make is the infrastructure is coming and it's coming quite rapidly. Charging units are being installed at a very substantial rate around the UK. I know that because until this time last year, I was chair of a company which installed charging. Um, and then we sold out to a, a French multinational and they, they've doubled the rate of charging since then. So the rate of charger installations. I, don't, I think the free market 
um, as you can tell, I'm ambiguous and ambivalent about the free market, excuse me. Um, but it looks as though it's working very well in um, car charging installation. Right. Now, at the moment, it's much more expensive to buy an electric car than to buy the equivalent petrol car. That probably is not going to be the case for more than three or four years, possibly less. I showed the example of the Volkswagen ID3 in the presentation, which is coming on sale at the end of the summer in Germany and probably will be in the UK by the end of the year. That is roughly the same price as a fossil fuel car, and you don't have to buy petrol, uh, which saves probably the typical customer of the order of £1,000 a month, uh, excuse me, £1,000 a year. So I think some short-term incentives, particularly on um, uh, smaller cars, may well be worthwhile. But for a car that's driven a long way and, and uses a lot of petrol, it's already economic. Now, on the question of delivery vehicles also, on balance now, I think, make sense financially. Electric. People will, perhaps people in the audience will tell me I'm wrong, but it does look as though there's every logic to doing that, uh, to switching to to, to, to electricity. The issue in the long term is going to be the supply of batteries, but for, for the short term, I'm not certain we need a much more subsidy apart from subsidy for smaller cars where the advantages of electric tend to be less marked than large cars. Thanks. That's for the owners. I have to say, as the, the, the owner of a, or the proud owner of an electric vehicle, I think the sense of smug, the, the smug sense of self-satisfaction <laughs> that you have is probably the best reward you can have. Um, um, what about... Uh, to, people don't think you're coming. I, I tell you, it's absolutely terrifying. You must oh, have it's this stealth mode. It's, it's, when I'm, I don't think I'm the best of drivers and I have this stealth mode. It, it is dangerous, yes. Um, you it really does cut your speed in, in urban areas because you're terrified that people are going to walk out in the road because you're making so little noise. So that's a big plus point as well. Do you think that um, councils and, and landlords and business owners need incentives or do you think that they will just follow what they decide, decide is good for them? I, I, I think, as I say, we until a year ago, I, I was chair of a company that installed these things and looking at the economics I see no reason to believe that uh, any subsidy is needed for the installation of it. Thanks. There's a, there's, a gold, there's, a, there's a gold rush going on. There's as many as possible and the obvious place where they should be installed are places like um, supermarket car parks where people have to be for 40 minutes. It takes roughly 40 minutes to, try, to, to charge up a car. Uh, from close to, to empty to close to full. Um, and there's a very strong financial incentive on the likes of the supermarket chains to install charging equipment in their, in their car parts. So moving on, we have another question from Joe from Oxford Skeptics in the Pub, who asks, what are the most exciting developments in energy storage so that the excess of electricity can be used later? I get awfully excited about hydrogen. I'm sorry, this may have been apparent. Um, the fact that all of a sudden around the world, not in the UK, but in many places around the world, there is now a realization that this could be the missing ingredient which makes full decarbonisation possible. Hasn't quite hit the UK yet. It's coming. Uh, but in places like the Netherlands uh, and to a certain extent Germany, it is assumed that the future consists of renewable renewables plus hydrogen. We just have to persuade policymakers here that the same thing is true of the UK. In doubly true because of our resources of offshore wind. 
Thanks. Uh, the next question is from Dave the Drummer. He asks, is taking carbon out of the atmosphere directly a realistic option in the timescales we have in addition to reducing the amount emitted? Uh, I showed some early, a couple of early plants for extracting our carbon dioxide from the air in the slides. Uh, there are only seven or eight around the world today, but they can, they're highly modular. They can be scaled. If we decided as a global society to invest in carbon capture through direct capture from the atmosphere, um, we could do it in a very short period of time. But if we go to you, we, we then have to decide what to do with it. We can then store it underground. And one of the slides I didn't show was carbon dioxide being stored underground in Iceland, actually, by, by combining it with basalt rock. Uh, carbon dioxide reacts quickly with basalt. Uh, it's absorbed forever. The, the rock changes as a result. Um, that is perfectly valid for large parts of the world. That's the best way of dealing with the carbon. But we also need carbon for those synthetic fuels that I was talking about to power our airplanes and things like that. I'm feeling more optimistic the more you talk. <laughs> um, and the next question is from uh, Anonymous, who uh, asks, would it be more efficient and realistic to produce electrical energy from nuclear power and convert to hydrogen the excess for use in fuel cells, cars, etc.? Well, there is actually a very large-scale experiment going on in the United States with a, a nuclear-powered power station, which um, is in an area where renewables are growing very fast, so it's often not needed. But you can't, in general, turn a nuclear power station up and down quickly. The French nuclear power stations can to a limited extent. We can't really do that in the UK to anything like the same extent. So, yes, there might be an argument for converting nuclear output into hydrogen um, when we've got too much electricity on the grid. That might well work in the UK. The arguments against new nuclear power stations are, I'm afraid, economic. It's approximately three times the price of onshore wind. Why would we do it? The only reason we do it is to avoid the intermittency problem. What my suggestion in the book is that we avoid the intermittency problem by building so much renewables that almost all the time we have enough electricity to go around. Am I right in thinking that the Germans cancelled their nuclear? And did, did they do that? And if so, what do you think of that? Um, many countries have, de have decided to move away from existing nuclear. So the German government is gradually closing down nuclear power stations that, that have existed by for 40 years or more. Um, the French government is gradually moving away from nuclear as well, even though it has the high, largest nuclear fleet, uh, the largest percentage of electricity. Um, the only places where there's significant development of nuclear power going on are Russia and China. And yeah, now, in each of those places, there may be other reasons for it. But nobody anymore contends that nuclear is ever going to be cheaper than solar. There are parts of the world where solar power now would be approximately, approximately 10% of the cost of the new nuclear power station that's being built at Hinkley Point in Somerset. Literally 10% of the cost. So you really have to believe that uh, renewables are, um, the intermittency problem won't go away to believe that nuclear is the right thing to be investing right. in for new power stations. 
Thanks. Um, and we have another, Anonymous has been busy because we have another question from them. Uh, part of this, I think you've already answered. Uh, are there many drawbacks to using renewables, for instance, production of batteries? And they mentioned the disruption of ecosystems, which you've already alluded to. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we'll, need, we'll need batteries, but in my view, for, we need them in the UK for short term for short term storage but they're never going to be enough for long term storage that is to say if we have a windy week in december we'll never be able to build enough battery capacity to store the that that surplus electricity so that we can use it in a quiet week in february um so yes bat- batteries the extraction of the minerals the metals to make um, batteries represents a severe environmental problem um, but the world is working on that we are using less and less cobalt batteries for example and there are very substantial advantages advances which are likely to take place in battery technologies and the chemistry of batteries which will mean that we will not need significant amounts of rare metals of any form um, to make them we'll move to sulfur and other and other widely available chemicals um, as the battery source but none of this solves the problem the long-term problem of the of seasonal storage of vast surpluses of energy i think hydrogen is the only way of doing that great thanks um the next question is from someone who signs themselves f-o-y-g-i is that fully well i'm not going to try um oh do you think that the current some it's just been pipped by someone else, but I will ask that question anyway. Do you think that the current situation, obviously where we are now, has been a positive or negative thing when it comes to decarbonizing our economy? It's difficult, isn't it? Um, it's been obviously to all of us the most appalling shock and, and threat to our stand uh, our, our, the way we run our lives, as well as being um um, immensely destructive of, of human life. Um, we've shown we can make dramatic changes. Um, we've seen the advantages of some of the uh, features of lockdown, lower pollution, more walking, um, less commitment to high carbon methods of transport, for example. But probably world emissions as a result of these appalling events are only going to go down by about 10% this year at most. So it hasn't had a dramatic effect on actual carbon production and it's uh, putting into the atmosphere. So this is not, as it were, a rehearsal for decarbonisation. What it is is a terrible shock and a realisation, what it should be doing to us is make us realise that we have been abusing nature in so many different ways. We've run; at, we are now at the limit of the planet's capacity to to handle our lives, and we need to go back to a simpler, more um, environmentally sensible method of, method of living. But broadly speaking, I would be pessimistic about this. I don't think this is actually a rehearsal for a real decarbonisation effort. Thanks. That's the first negative thing I think I've heard you said, this first really negative, but yeah, quite, quite fair mm-hmm. enough. Um, the next question is from Jane, uh, who asks, what would be the effect on jobs of a mass conversion to zero carbon? Um, I try to suggest in the book that 
the net impact on jobs is probably beneficial, um, but there are going to be huge if, if decarbonisation happens in approximately the sort of way I've been suggesting. There are some very large sectors which lose employment, something like 300,000 people, for example, work in clothing retailing in the UK. I've forgotten the exact number, forgive me, but it's several hundred thousand. I'm suggesting that our patterns of clothing use, our patterns of clothing purchase, um, which have grown more and more wasteful over the last generation, um, need to be changed dramatically so that we keep clothes, we repair them, we refashion them, we rebuild them, we, 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 we put them properly into the circular economy. That produces jobs, but it's not the same jobs as the people working in Primark. Uh, so there is a very, very considerable cost to the transition in terms of employment. But across decarbonized economy, I think there's no reason to believe that jobs would be less available than they are at the moment. I identified on the last slide jobs in renewables, jobs in forestry, probably job, more jobs in food production, for example, as we move away from large-scale industrial manufacture of poor-quality food towards a more localized, um, uh, uh, less meat-based diet. That's what I think should happen. Of course, it may not. But um, once again, for example, also in the case of en local energy supply, um, pushing energy creation and electricity generation, for example, down to the municipal level will pull back employment out of the large cities into the smaller cities towards the periphery of the UK, which is you know, where the, the globalization has had most detrimental effects over the last generation. So quick answer yes there's going to be some enormous transition problems but on balance i think there's going to be no net loss of jobs good thank you um uh the next question we go back to joe from oxford skeptics in the pub whose question keeps fighting with somebody else for top spot but there it is uh would it be viable they keep popping up and down would it be viable for sunny countries to use solar solar energy to power hydrogen production then use existing oil pathways to supply it globally yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well that's what australia very much thinks it's going to do actually um australia is probably the best place in the world at the moment bits of australia to make hydrogen at low cost um japan korea have said they want to buy hydrogen so there is, there is, in fact, a plan to put a pipeline from. It's it's very very early stage, but it's just an illustration of what's being talked about. To put a hydrogen to, to put a hydrogen pipeline from the north coast of Australia right into Singapore. Very very long pipeline. Um, I'm not sure it'll ever take place, but it's just an illustration of the kind of um, replication of the existing oil uh, uh, distribution system with hydrogen um, for the UK. Yeah, we might end up buying a lot of hydrogen from 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 uh, from Australia and other places with enormous resources of sun, but at the cost of our offshore wind is going to come down to a figure that's not that much lower once you've taken much more higher, excuse me, once you've taken into account the effect of transport costs. Right, I think we've probably got time for a couple more questions. Um, hydrogen anonymous person has asked this one. Oh, they're jumping up and down. I can't keep track of this. Hydrogen has a bad rap. Don't mention the Hindenburg. It's more explosive than methane and burns with an invisible flame. How will it go down with the yep. public? Right, okay. So uh, the, 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 that's right. It has The, the, the characteristics of combustion of hydrogen are, are very different. 
So we will almost certainly need to put colour into the flame. Don't think that. So that's been worked on at the moment. Um, so so we will know when the when the um, when the hydrogen is burning in our central heating system. Um, uh, it uh, the Hindenburg is always used as an example. Um, uh, the reason the Hindenburg went up in flames in the way it did was more to do with coating of the airship than it was the hydrogen. We're shipping vast quantities of hydrogen around the world, even as even today, uh, through pipelines and elsewhere, with a very good safety record. Not perfect, but a very good safety record compared to methane. Um, so, yes, there are issues to be worried about, but is this more dangerous than the petrol, than, than pouring petrol at a garage into a, into a machine which then burns it? Actually, no, we can make this at least as safe. That's a very good point. So moving on to the final question then, which is from Jonathan Reed. He asks, what is the best balance between carrot, tax credits and subsidies, versus stick, aviation fuel taxes, carbon-linked energy tariffs, incentives to, to do the best incentives ah. for UK consumers? Okay, well, I was trained as an economist, so I always, every economist you'll ever ask will say carbon taxation is the way forward. You tax bad things. Um, and you don't make it specific. You just, anything that produces CO2 or other greenhouse gases, you say, you'll have to pay this per tonne. Um, that, I think, is the best way of doing it. The problem with subsidy systems is they tend to be abused. They tend to become subject to special interests. People argue for their own particular technology against everybody else. I think a universal carbon tax would be the world's best solution to this. I'm not saying it's going to happen. It's a long way from happening. But we need to keep that conversation going. Welcome back. Um, I'm so pleased to see so many of you here again. Uh, and presumably that's because Chris's talk was so interesting and generated so much, um, so much interest that we couldn't get through all the questions. Uh, he's very kindly agreed to come back. So uh, very warm welcome to you again, Chris. Uh, I've tidied up the questions and I've divided them up into a few different categories but first of all quite a number of the comments weren't questions they were a lot of them were saying thank you for a very interesting talk um, thank you for being so much informative for being so informative and getting so much information into a relatively short space of time also there were two or three people asked if there was anywhere they could get access to your slides uh, absolutely I'm very happy to, to to send them over to, to, to skeptics for distribution for anybody who wants them. Thank you very much. If you could do that, we'd be very grateful because there were a few people who, who uh, wanted just to look into it a bit more. My, um, the, my pleasure. Okay. So the first subject that I picked out, which we didn't talk about a lot on Thursdays, personal responsibility. Uh, there were quite mm -hmm. a few questions about about us, the end users, and how much, yeah. do, how much, how big a part does educating us play? Specifically, people were asking about things like teaching us to boil only the amount of water we need, little things like that, and lights off, laundry at specific mm -hmm. times of day, right through to bigger things like clothing and cars. Is it going to be important? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I think it is important. Uh, what we do as individuals, of course, has very limited impact on, on the world. This is a global problem. There are 8 billion of us. Uh, each individual has no impact directly whatsoever. 
But social movements all start from groups of people saying they do not wish to participate in a system which is creating a, a greater and greater problem every day. Um, the best example of this, of course, is slavery. Uh, the move against uh, slavery, institutionalized slavery in Britain, in England particularly, uh, in the late 18th century, uh, took a long time to build up. But nevertheless, people simply saying, I am not going to eat sugar, was one of the most important ingredients in the eventual vast political change that took too long to occur, but did eventually occur. The same thing is going to happen here. We're beginning to get an understanding that we do have an individual responsibility. We, we are um, required to get to know exactly what it is that our actions, how our actions create emissions. Um, the problem, of course, is that it's often the most uncomfortable things to stop that would actually have the most impact on us and act as the most powerful signal to those people around us. Uh, the most important thing many of us can do is to stop flying or to minimize the amount of flying we can do. I realize that's a very uncomfortable thing to say, but the emissions from that dwarf all other activities. Second thing is uh, the meat industry. We, I mentioned in the presentation that agriculture is about 25% of global emissions. Uh, for those of us who are heavy meat eaters, that will be the second most important element in our, in our life. And, and a move towards a diet that is more like a traditional vegan diet and away from eating meat, particularly beef and sheep, will be an important personal change that we can make. It's not so much that we are going to make an effect on, our, our, on, on doing this, but we are then become part of a movement which has a chance of adjusting the way politics, the political system in general, actually uh, uh, begins to take hold of the climate change problem. That's interesting. So another question, get greenhouse emissions down enough in livestock and dairy farming, or should we be moving to a plant-based diet? And I think you've just been pretty clear about that. As, as far as I can see, uh, if, if we grow cattle, particularly in feedlots, for meat, we are going to be stuck with very high levels of emissions into the future. In the end... A meat-based diet is, I think, incompatible with climate stability. Um, a little bit of meat here and there, particularly pork and poultry, is not going to uh, make much of a difference. But cutting out beef and sheep meat, lamb, will have a dramatic difference on your emissions often. Will that change in land use have much of an effect on biodiversity? Right. So we're into a very complicated area here, aren't we, Cleo? That Ideally, we would want to allow the land which we're currently using for beef and particularly sheep grazing to return to a, a wild, uh, uh, to, to the way it would have been before humankind arrived, which would have a dramatic effect on biodiversity, beneficial effect on biodiversity, mm -hmm. if we allowed genuine rewilding. That's a slow process, the kind of thing that George Monbiot has been so effectively advocating over the last five years. It's a slow process. And in my view, that might be okay for 10% of the UK, but for the other 20% that we want to give over to forest, get back to forestry, there is an argument for making that human, making human intervention to speed up the growth of trees and to make sure that the capture of carbon in those trees is maximized and build an industry around it 
giving employment to the people in the peripheral areas of the country who are otherwise reliant on agricultural subsidies. That also then feeds into one of the worries was that some a lot of our biomass for for the power stations was coming from abroad. Mm. If we could grow our own forests, then that would help with that, wouldn't it? Yeah, and we managed them in a way that was traceable. The, we are, as I said, in the, I believe, if I remember correctly, in the presentation, we are the second most important importer of wood products in the world behind China. A lot of that arises from the fact that the, the large biomass power stations at Drax and on the Thames are using enormous quantities, principally of North American biomass, North American tree products, to make the pellets which uh, act as their fuel. Now, there's a big debate about whether that's sustainable, genuinely sustainable or not. Uh, in my view, it probably isn't, but we can build a biomass industry in the UK that still captures more carbon than it burns. So it acts as a, a net benefit. It acts of, as though it's a, it's a net benefit to the, to the climate. This is a very sensitive, very complicated issue. Opinions are widely divergent on this. People get very worked up about it. We do need to have a more of a national discussion on it. But that, I believe, is a good use for the land that we give up from uh, low-quality pasture. That's yeah. That, that that actually is very optimistic. I think one of the more worrying things that one of the things that people were more worried about was large scale arable to replace the um, meat based diet. Whether that would ha be detrimental in any way? No, I don't. I don't think it is de detrimental. We, we animals are a very very inefficient uh, method of creating food from land. Um, a, a typical cattle, if I remember the, um, the numbers correctly, a typical cow um, takes four units of food to make one unit of, of meat. Um, in other words, we need a lot more land to grow the food in the form of meat than we would do if we were growing it in the form of pulses or grains. Uh, better for us, better for the environment, better for biodiversity, and certainly better for global heating. Brilliant, thank you. Um, and moving on to uh, transition, a number of people worried about the costs of preparing to go carbon free. And what about the embodied carbon in renewables and energy storage EVs? Right, right. Can, can I deal with embedded carbon in renewable electricity sources first? <clears throat> with recent advances in efficiency in solar power in solar panels and wind turbines the embedded carbon now represents in general there are there are specific exceptions to this but particularly in areas where the wind speeds aren't very high or there isn't much sun but in general in good locations the the carbon invested in the manufacture of that equipment is paid back in energy terms within 6 months maybe maybe a year but often within six months. And for example, in the solar panel, a solar panel put on a roof today is probably going to be working in 35 years. So yes, we are getting a very good return on our energy investment in solar, and it's getting better all the time. Batteries is more difficult. The energy return uh, is good, but uh, it does require a lot of mining, uh, uh, in particular of, of uh, metals which are uh, not in not in huge oversupply, cobalt being one example. Uh, and there are, of course, human rights issues as well uh, with the mining of cobalt, which is dominated by the Democratic Republic of Congo. So, yeah, there are um, uh, 
sustainability issues here and there are issues of human rights. Absolutely no question about it. But I see nothing in the energy revolution which necessarily is blocked by those two categories of problem. We just need to be aware of it and put it at the top of every list of questions that we ask about our energy future. I remember last uh, on Thursday you were talking about new battery technologies which sounded quite hopeful and the end of cobalt batteries. Um, yes, there are certain signs that big manufacturers are moving entirely away from cobalt. There are battery manufacturers in China now which are not using cobalt at all. I believe most Tesla batteries no longer, no longer contain cobalt. We can get rid of cobalt. We'll still need vast quantities of lithium, and we will probably need quantities of um, other metals such as nickel. Nickel's in very, very wide supply, so it's not a particular issue. There's no question we are going to need to mine um, nickel, uh, excuse me, lithium from areas that are not currently. Uh, used um, there are there is for example the prospect of mining lithium in Cornwall uh, uh, particularly out of the uh, water in abandoned mines um, nobody particularly likes to have mining but we are going to need to but to to, um, to mine vast quantities of lithium over the next few years we may switch away to sulfur based batteries but that's not proven yet and we also need to be- develop a worldwide 100% recycling industry for lithium-ion batteries. That does not exist at all at the moment. Yes, that sounds really important, especially um, I have a mental health background and obviously lithium is fairly important there too. Um, yeah. There were a number of questions about your houses in Nottingham. Was it expensive to refurbish them? Right. Those were very expensive. Those costed, if I cost, I remember rightly, um, and it's in the book. Forgive me for forgetting it. I think something like over a hundred thousand pounds each. They were the first in the UK. The next generation of them have been much cheaper, and the the social uh, company that is propounding this technology is now quoting figures of around forty thousand euros for that complete total refurbishment uh, on the latest houses it's been doing in the Netherlands. Um, I haven't checked those figures. Sounds reasonable. Uh, It's the process of standardization of mass manufacture that's going to pull that cost down. Um, And we need, I'm afraid, to accept that if we're going to um, improve our housing stock, and that's absolutely urgent uh, across the whole of the UK, we'll need to change the external appearance of them. This is not popular. Uh, People like Victorian houses, but they are one of the worst sources of uh, greenhouse gases in the UK today. Do you think that we can, obviously it'll be much cheaper if this is all built in from scratch. Do you think we can persuade construction companies to do that? Um... They have been very reluctant. This is one of the most old-fashioned, uh, stodgy and inflexible industries that we face. Uh, I would like building regulations to be strict and to say you have to get to net zero with all new housing. It would probably add, I don't know, 2 3 4 5% to the cost of a house built next year. But very soon, the cost would come down to where it's exactly equivalent. There is nothing inherently cost costly about building zero carbon housing we've got this illusion created by the construction industry which is used to a very inefficient almost medieval way of manufacturing housing um, of of building houses uh, that uh, cost that zero carbon is costly 
It is not. That's been proved time after time in countries around the world. We need to use regulation to push them into this. So cement is obviously another issue when it comes to construction. Do you think that we will mm. find a way around it or is, do you think we can get to carbon free construct, other carbon free construction processes? Ah, that, you know, some people would question which the world faces. Um, sounds strange, you know, with all the other issues we face, aviation, beef and things like this. It's cement which people say, hmm, this is a problem. There are very low carbon cement today. Um, they're costly. They're not making rapid inroads into their marketplaces. The alternative is to say, OK, we'll use existing technologies for making uh, cement principally kilns where we heat carbonates and uh, and the carbon dioxide comes off but we have to collect all the carbon uh, carbon dioxide and recycle that into other products mm-hmm. or indeed just put it into the ground and store it there so my personal belief is that the cement industry will end up by focusing on that carbon capture and storage from cement as opposed to other technologies uh, which may offer cement-like materials, but don't appear to be capable of producing it at the same price. So we we have to hope that these a number of these industries realise that these things are going to be in their long-term interests. Oh, 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 look, there's absolutely no doubt that uh, around the world, that major manufacturers, whether it be cement, steel or fertiliser, are absolutely aware that they are going to have to change and they are beginning to spend money. We in the UK are running behind on this. Most of our large companies are pretending the problem will go away or that there's some solution will be found, such as giving them the ability to plant trees in Africa or some other excuse for not doing very much. But the major international manufacturers, steel companies, for example, are utterly, absolutely aware that, that the use of coal making steel will be impossible in a relatively small number of years. So we're seeing rapid innovation and we're seeing developments across the board in those in those significant industries. I wish the UK and the UK government in particular was more cognizant of the of the rising trend in other countries for the industrial emissions of, uh, of, of CO2 and other gases to be treated seriously and regulation being introduced to make sure that companies behave in a way that is right for the long-term health of the climate. Thanks. Um, carbon offsetting then, how much should that feature in planning? <clears throat> I, I'm just thinking, I, I'm we- for one tick the box when I used to fly, but I didn't know what it meant. I just felt good about ticking a box. I mean, is it is it important? Negative emissions. That's to say, we're going to need to fund things which take carbon dioxide out of the air and keep it, because we're never probably going to be able to completely stop this society or any other society from emitting CO2, from, from doing things which result in CO2 emissions. The current generation of carbon offsetting uh, processes, um, products, are... Broadly speaking, complete scams. Uh, mm-hmm. There are some exceptions to that. Don't want to be too rude. There are forestry uh, products which really work. But the idea that large companies have, they're all companies are the worst at this, saying, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to plant 10,000 hectares of trees, and that's going to cover all our emissions. That's not going to work. If I, uh, as you say, tick the box uh, on a flight um, and say I'm going to offset that, that does not actually directly reduce the emissions, uh, net emissions anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. There, I talk about this in the book. There are genuinely effective offsetting schemes. 
They tend to be very expensive, but they do work. And if you need to take a flight, then look at those ones, uh, uh, not just ticking a box on the Ryanair uh, booking form on your computer. Right. I feared as much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Another one to be a bit more proactive. Uh, uh, um, yeah, it's not. We're not able to. Ex, we may be able to offset two, three percent of total world emissions through increased forestation. We can't. But yet, every single oil company in the world is now saying that they are going to engage in in tree planting as a way of reducing their responsibility for emissions. It simply isn't going to work. We'd have a world just covered in trees by the sound of it. If if they well, were, well, there's just not enough land. There's just yeah. not enough land area to do this, you know. So um, there were some questions about um, some of the specific technologies you talked about. Um, you were talking about how in Germany and, and a lot of other countries, things are much more um, decentralised. And someone yes. asked whether uh, power microgrids had any role to play in that move. Um, should we explain roughly what a, a power micro, a microgrid do. is? Yes, it would help uh, me as well. Right. I mean, what, what we have in the UK is, broadly speaking, a national system. It's, it's, um, uh, it, yes, it is, it is the UK. That is to say, the, the island of Britain, uh, not, not the island of Ireland, um, where every single um, uh, property that's connected to the grid is part of one single national grid. Um, what a microgrid is, is an, is an attempt to create a system that is separable from that national grid. It may be attached to it wherever it is, in California, in Africa, in India, or in Britain, but it can sit independently, generate its own electricity uh, for the users on that network. So it has batteries, it has renewable electricity systems, it has devices to make sure that electricity and, and supply and demand are balanced. And all this can be islanded, it can be separated from the national grid. And it does look as though this is a very, very good way of, taking, of getting local communities to, do, to be able to control their own energy supply system. And in particularly in remote areas, whether it be Australia, India, or parts of Scotland, this is a very good way of minimizing the cost of electricity, because it's often cheaper to generate electricity locally than it is to transport it very large distances. You know, our electricity bills, we're all getting through the post, not, not through the post, but we're all getting our electricity bills. Um, about the same amount uh, of that electricity bill is going to the people who run our distribution system as who are, going to, as who are actually generating the electricity in the first place. It's becoming more and more important, more and more costly. A microgrid is a way of avoiding some of that cost and allowing local communities to control more effectively the supply and demand for electricity, particularly trading it amongst themselves. So if I've got a solar power, solar power on my roof, my neighbor wants to, wants to run a kettle, uh, I can sell her my surplus electricity and the transaction occurs between us. Very early stage, but um, blockchain and other modern digital technologies are making this possible in a way that wasn't even envisageable five years ago. So that would include being able to use um, people able to share their battery storage for their solar power or their battery on their electric car. Yeah. Would they, they'd all be part of this grid. They'd right. all be part of it. So, so the, the microgrids that are being developed, um, some of the, the most interesting ones are actually in the U.S. state of Vermont. Uh, with a very progressive utility there that's developing this, effectively what's called virtual power plants. So everybody with 
batteries and um, solar power on the roofs or whatever um, is in effect part of an isolated system uh, which is trading uh, supply and demand inside that small area. Uh, particular benefit of that in Vermont is subject to um, uh, uh, weather problems and as a result microgrids in a place like that produce very much higher levels of reliability than would be generally the case for a huge distributed grid. Um, a very different question now. Is there any future in hydrogen cars? <clears throat> okay, I'm going to get out on the limb and say no. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, this is this is a contentious statement. Uh, fuel cell cars have been around a long time. Uh, and the reason is, I don't think the economics ever make any sense against a straightforward battery car. We're seeing battery cars coming onto the market now with 250 miles range, reliable. Um, they're expensive, but I can tell you a fuel cell car would be very much more expensive. I don't know the exact price of the major fuel cell car on the market today, that is to say a hydrogen car, the Toyota Mirai, but I think it's something like £65,000. In other words, it's a ridiculously expensive car, and there's no sign much cheaper. No, I think batteries have won this battle. Right. Somebody asked whether um, capacitive storage batteries would be capacitive storage is would be better than batteries. Um, it's often often talked about, but what Mr. Musk has done at Tesla has pushed the cost of lithium-ion storage down to levels which are now hugely competitive with all other forms of energy storage. It's very difficult to see even some of the most interesting technologies for storage, such as capacitors, large-scale capacitors, or pumped air, or compressed air, rather, being able to compete uh, with the, the kind of prices that um, Tesla has now uh, has pushed the price mm. of lithium-ion batteries down to around possibly as low as 60 uh, US dollars per kilowatt hour. Right. Thanks. That that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to ask you a final question now, which I'm not sure I understand. And um, there were a few questions <laughs> about potential technologies. So I'll ask you whether these are. So I, I don't know whether they are wacky or terribly sensible. Um, they included. I'm not sure I will either, Cleo. I'm not sure I will. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'll, 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 I'll try them. Um, was it recycling waste plastic to make new fuels was one. And yeah. another one was using methanol as a starting point using solar furnaces and molten salt. So first of those, um, using existing hydrocarbon based products, petrochemical based products such as plastics, can we get energy out of them? Yes, we can. We can take that back to a, a useful product, whether it be through a combustion process or through general recycling. The question I would ask anybody propounding this is, should we be producing that plastic in the first place? Mm -hmm. in other, you know, we've, we've had to extract oil to make that plastic. We may be able to reuse it, but each stage it will go through, it loses some of its energy value, and that energy is being lost as CO2 eventually uh, to the atmosphere. So we want to minimize plastic use. We want to minimize all forms of waste product. And it is not going to be ever, even if on the basis of current use, it's never going to be a significant source of, um, of, of energy for the world. Um, the, the second thing, the use of methanol as an intermediary, as a combustible intermediary. Methanol is a very, uh, a, a very simple chemical with oxygen, hydrogen, and carbon in it. 
Uh, it can act as a storage system for, for hydrogen. It can be burnt effectively as a substitute for petrol in some circumstances. So, yes, methanol may have a role to play in, as, as, a, as a, what is uh, called in the jargon a storage vector, uh, efficient to make cheap, cheap, cheap furnaces. Um, and so, yes, I'd be much more uh, positive about that. Uh, but we still haven't got anybody that's quite making it work financially. So... I, I'll wrap up with a follow-up question of my own, actually, because um, not using oils is obviously the biggie. Are there many good replacements for plastics? I, I feel like there must be. Well, we can make plastics from biological sources. Uh, we can make them also biodegradable. Um, there is inherently energy use in that, but we can make some progress away from petrochemical-based plastics. I would, I would say the same thing, though. In the end, what we want to make sure is that uh, we, we continue to use plastics. They are, we can't avoid using plastics. They're highly beneficial to modern society. But we've got to make them so that they last. We, the idea of, of, of buying something in a plastic container, using it, and then throwing the plastic container away is 20th century. We've got to move to the point where every single bit of plastic that we use is 100% recycled or kept forever. Um, car manufacturers are pretty good at that. All the plastics in cars, such modern cars today, are pretty much 100% recyclable. We've got a long way to go, however, with most consumer goods, small-scale consumer goods, the kind of things we buy in supermarkets. Thank you. That's You've actually taken this full circle to personal responsibility, and not just personal responsibility, but putting pressure on manufacturers uh, yeah. to do things that we want them to do, like not wrap things in 10 layers of plastic, um, as a very simple suggestion. Uh, 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 yes, yes, indeed. And, and funnily enough, most manufacturers want us to demand... Uh, uh, environmental um, consciousness from them. Now, the manufacturers are very generally, most industries that I've ever come across, very, very aware of the environmental problems that result from them. But if nobody wants to buy the things which are more environmentally, they're left with no business. So they tend to stick with what they're doing. So it's up to us to alter our consumption patterns and show manufacturers that what we want is the environmentally friendly alternative. Brilliant. I think that's a wonderful note to finish on. So uh, thank you very much once again. That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more sceptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website, at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>